My name is Matthew, and I want to welcome you to our church home. Welcome you to Kingsway. I have the joy of preaching God's word today. As we continue our study from the book of Ephesians. Uh, but before we do that, I wanted to give you a um, brief uh, announcement on what's been going on in my family the last uh, 24, 48 hours. And um, why this is a hard morning to preach. <laughs> I'm going to need these. <laughs> okay. And juice. Oh boy. So um, on Friday, um, my family got a, a message that my sister Karen, who many of you know, she grew up in this church with me, um, and has a daughter, um, almost one year old, named Elise. Um, Karen and her husband Bob, a couple months ago, uh, moved to Tunisia in North Africa, so that Bob, her husband, could do um, some research as part of his Ph.D. program at the University of Virginia. Um, on Friday morning, we got a text message that from Mom. Uh, my parents were also members of this church. That little Elise uh, was sick, and they didn't know what was wrong with her, but they were taking her to a hospital. And uh, Friday night, we got a message that Elise had died. She was a week shy of her first birthday. And unbeknownst to my sister and her husband, um, Elise had acute leukemia um, and died from a massive brain hemorrhage. Uh, my parents arrived in Tunisia a couple hours ago. Um, I'm staying here for now. <laughs> but my heart is very heavy for my sister. Um, being a dad with three boys... It just hurts differently. And there hasn't been a lot of sleep in the last 24 hours. Um, Chris, can you come pray for me? I need it. God has been faithful to help me. I have received... Um, more text messages and voicemails and emails from those of you who found out than I could possibly return in about three days. <laughs> and for that, I'm very grateful. Um, I'm also thankful that in the midst of our grief, that God's word is true and that he has been faithful to help me prepare to preach. Okay? Um, but this is a family, and I'm not just going to be up here and be a happy pastor guy when my heart is breaking. And yet... The word of the Lord remains true. 
that's why I'm going to preach it. Uh, so, Chris, if you could pray for me, and then we, together as a family, uh, will let God speak. Thanks, Sean. Thank you, Sean. Uh, before I pray, and your thoughts, I can feel them and hear them towards me. Chris, why is he preaching and you are not? Which Explain is my same that. thought. Explain that. Because we went through this, and part of the deal was Matthew's heart oh. to prepare the Word of God and bring it is uh, <laughs> devoted. I don't know how a better way to say that. He is devoted, and he sought, he prayed, and I said, just say it, and I will be up here. I know you've been preparing. This was yesterday's conversation. I'll take it, whatever. Matthew said, no, let me serve the Lord. Let me serve the church. Let me do that. And so he's here because he believes God has called him to be here. He wants to be here. He wants to serve. Um, so anyway, I'm grateful for you and for your service. And uh, But we're going to go ahead and pray for you. We love you, brother. Father, we do not begin to understand the whys of things like this. Lord, they are mystery to us. Mystery. And yet, Father, there is deep grief. There is sorrow. There is pain on many accounts and on many fronts, which you know the best. And yet, Father, we ask now that we continue and we pray especially for Matthew. We pray for the Williams family. We pray for Karen and Bob, Lord, as they desperately need your comfort, the comfort of your Holy Spirit to be with them. We ask, Father, that you would be with Karen and Bob, Lord. May your spirit speak directly to their hearts. May there be a peace that passes an understanding, Lord. Without answers, how great is the grief, but Lord, your spirit can bring peace, and we ask that. Lord, we ask for Ted and Kim, that you would give them grace and mercy to minister Spirit of God, we ask for your strength, your encouragement, your direction, your wisdom for decisions that need to be made. And now, Father, I ask that your spirit would come upon Matthew, that your anointing for the preaching of your word that has been upon your men of old would come now as he opens your sacred word at the sacred desk. Spirit of God, come. We trust you. Empower Matthew. Fill him now for this leadership task. Open our hearts. Open our ears to hear your word. We ask this for your glory and your name's sake.
Oh, thank you for praying. Thank you for praying. You know, folks, it's really in situations like this where, where we decide if we actually believe what we say we believe. Do you know what I mean by that? Um, when Jeremy started out singing this morning, um, haven't you been good? I mean, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? You can't just close your eyes and, and pretend your life away when you sing that, right? And yet, what I can understand, and you can understand, is not the ultimate judge of what's true. And so when there are things in our life that make absolutely no sense, we really do have a choice to make. Is what God says still true? Or is what I feel true? And I praise God, friend, that um, you know I can stand on the front row. I hope you do this. When you've had weeks like my last 48 hours, and, and you can say to the Lord, God, I'm really having trouble singing this right now. You know, and his response is not, well, well, just sing it. <laughs> now, what, what, is the, what does he do? He's near to the brokenhearted. And he saves the crushed in spirit. And he surrounds you with steadfast love. And he strengthens those who are weary. Right? And he'll do that even as you stand here, like I was this morning, saying, God, this is really, really, really hard. That's, that's when change takes place. And to God, I wish it didn't hurt so much. I really do. And I honor how many of you, boys, I think about this, how many of you that I know in this church, week after week as we sing, even a song like Haven't You Been Good, you're making the same choices. You know, I think of, you know, how many of you know Doug Bear battling ALS? You know when Doug, how, how's Doug, Doug singing? Haven't you been good? What's well, it's because God's goodness flows to us in this life, not ultimately through our physical health or lack thereof, but through the personal work of Jesus Christ that secures a day when we're going to have physical health and there's not going to be any more sin. So that's why we can sing, have you be good. Because of Jesus, even when our life is falling apart and we don't understand why in the world this is happening, God. That's why. That's why I'm here. So, open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. In case you couldn't tell, that was Matthew preaching to himself. <laughs> You need to hear it too. Oh, well, as do I. 
as do I. If you were here last week and heard me talk about our um, various Republican presidential candidates, I'm going to continue on a, on a theme, somewhat unintentionally, by introducing this message with a quote from former President Ronald Reagan. Uh, many of you know that on June 12, 1987, President Reagan gave a speech in front of a place called the Brandenburg Gate, separating East Berlin from West Berlin. And I think one of the most gripping passages in his remarks reads as follows. Reagan said, Behind me stands a wall that encircles the free sectors of this city, part of a vast system of barriers that divides the entire continent of Europe. Standing before the Brandenburg Gate, every man is a German, separated from his fellow men. Every man is a Berliner, forced to look upon a scar. As long as this gate is closed, as long as this scar of a wall is permitted to stand, it is not the German question alone that remains open but the question of freedom for all mankind. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and, and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I read that because I think that the Berlin Wall is probably one of the most visceral symbols of disunity and separation in the last 50 years of world history. It's in my lifetime that this thing was up. It was built in 1961 by the communist government in East Berlin to stop East Germans from fleeing to West Berlin. In case you didn't know, it was 12 feet tall, made of concrete, lined with guard towers, barbed wire, machine guns, searchlights, dogs, and mines. And over the close to 30 years of its existence, several hundred people were shot trying to cross the wall. And thousands more were captured. And the fall of the Berlin Wall, which I'm sure many of you in this room remember, in November of 1989, was a tremendous victory for the cause of German reunification. It really was. You hear stories of family members that have been, been separated for more than two decades. They could finally see each other. And their newfound unity was sweet. But when I think about it, friends, it was purely external. What do I mean by that? Well, being able to cross the Berlin Wall, the fall of the wall, it couldn't keep German marriages from failing. 
German children from rebelling, German churches from dividing. It was a potent symbol, no doubt. But the fall of the wall had absolutely no power to touch and transform the heart of the Germans. It couldn't change the places and points of disunity and separation that hurt us the most. Right? The the disunity and separation between a husband and a wife. Between a, a, a parent and a child or a brother and a sister. It couldn't touch those things. It couldn't change those disunities. And if you live long enough, you will experience the pain of broken relationships. You will. It's an inevitable part of life in a fallen world where things are not the way they were created to be. And yet... In the face of that darkness, that disunity, that alienation and separation and division that all of us taste and are experienced on some level, we have a reason for hope. That's Ephesians 2, verse 4, which I preached last Sunday. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. It's called the power of the gospel. The good news of of freedom from sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the hope that Apostle Paul celebrates in Ephesians 2. The hope that we have relationship with God, we're loved and accepted by Him, not because of what we do for God, but because of what God in Christ does for us. That's what Paul celebrates, that gift of relationship with God. And that gift, he's about to argue, what I'm about to read from Ephesians 2, that gift of reconciled relationship with God has profound implications for our relationships with one another. Paul's transitioning here from speaking about our relationship with God to our relationship with one another. And we're going to take two weeks to look at Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. But the main point of this entire passage, I'm just going to read the first part of it here this morning, is simply this. This is what I want you to remember. True unity is a relationship that God creates through the power of the gospel. True unity is a relationship that only God can create the power of the gospel. Reagan could not create that. But God can. And God does. So, if disunity is ravaging your friendships, your family, your marriage, or somebody else that you used to have a relationship with, know this, friend. True unity is a relationship that God can create through the power of the gospel. You can't create it, but, but He can. And I I would argue that there's no better illustration of the reconciling power of the gospel than the unity forged between Jew and Gentile. Okay? It's a case study 
for the unity that God wants to build in all our relationships. To remember what God has done in that relationship, in the relationship between Jew and Gentile, is to have our faith increased for what God wants to do in all our relationships today. So I want to read Ephesians 2. 11 through 18, and listen in as Paul describes how has God brought unity between Jew and Gentile, and by extension, by application, how does God want to bring unity in our relationships today? Okay? Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Brother, sister, hear that today. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I have two very simple points this morning. And I think if we take these together, friends, we'll see in a new way why unity, true unity, is a relationship that God creates through the power of the gospel. Okay, so here's point one. First thing I believe Paul wants us to see. Division between men is a result of separation from God. There's a connection. Division between men on this level is a result of separation from God on this level. And in verse 11, Paul identifies two groups of people. And in case you're not familiar with these groups, you're thinking, what's up with Jews and Gentiles? we just give you a quick review, okay? Jews and Gentiles were distinguished from one another by a physical symbol called circumcision. So circumcision was a big deal because it indicated whether or not you were part of the people of God. In case you missed that, it's a big deal whether or not you're part of the people of God. And therefore, at that time, prior to the coming of Christ, whether or not you were circumcised was a very big deal. Very big deal. In the book of Genesis, God makes a covenant, initiates a relationship with a man named Abraham. So read this in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right, so that, that's an unbelievable promise that Abraham and his descendants would know the blessing of relationship with God. It was a covenant that God promised to keep, even at the cost of his own life. And yet, if Abraham and his descendants were going to experience the covenant blessings that God promised, they had to fulfill certain covenant obligations. All right? Both conditional and unconditional elements were present in this relationship. So God will be faithful to Abraham, but Abraham has to obey God. Genesis 17. Listen to what God says to him. As for you, Abraham, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision was a big deal because it expressed in a physical sense a heart that was consecrated to following God and obeying God. And we know that because of Deuteronomy 10. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens. I.e., he's the man. (laughs) The earth with all that's in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers. And chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcised therefore the foreskin of your hearts. Hear that? And be no longer stubborn. It was a physical action, circumcision. But it carried tremendous spiritual significance. Because to be circumcised was to number yourself among the people that God had chosen for a particular exclusive relationship with Him. That was the people of ethnic Israel. And Paul describes the benefits they had, the blessings that they had, that particular exclusive relationship they had in the form of five covenant realities, Ephesians 2, that separated Jews from Gentiles. And each one of these, as Paul goes through them in a verse or two, were designed to remind the Ephesians that the life they had now was not the life they once had. All right, so let me go through these quickly, okay? First, Paul says, the Ephesians, by the way, if you're here as a Gentile, this is true of you too, okay? The Ephesians were separated from Christ. In other words, they couldn't claim the promise of a coming Messiah in the way that the Jews could and did. So God promised that a day was coming when he would bring salvation to his people through a king in the line of David, a suffering servant who would reconcile the people of Israel to God. The Gentiles had no such promise. Second, the Ephesians were were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. What's up with that? Well, it simply means that before the coming of Christ, the people of God were defined in ethnic 
return. So if you wanted to be reconciled to God, if you wanted to have relationship with God, then you had to be assimilated into ethnic Israel, the people God promised to save. If you were separate from Israel, then you were separate from the saving purposes of God. Third, Ephesians, Gentiles, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. In other words, God had not revealed to you the path of salvation that he revealed to Israel. Okay, Gentiles knew from, from creation and conscience that God existed and that he was worthy of absolute obedience, but they lacked clear revelation that Israel had as to how you could enjoy a, a relationship with him. Bottom line, bottom line, Paul says, if you were a Gentile, Ephesians, then there was a point in redemptive history when you had no hope and you were without God in the world. And friend, I warn you, if right now you're not following Jesus, then you too have no hope and are without God in the world. If you don't know the joy of relationship with God in this world, you're not going to have the joy of relationship with God in the world to come. And if you're without God, then you are without hope. And if you are without hope, then it is because you are without God. Nothing could be more terrifying. And so Paul's reminding us here that this, this distinction between Jew and Gentile wasn't just an ethnic separation. It was a spiritual separation with big-time consequences. Because to be alienated from Israel, separate from Israel, was to be alienated from God. Now why, having said all that, why would Paul want to take the Ephesians through all that? And why would he put it in the Bible so that on a Sunday morning in March, we would review all that? What's he, what's he after? What's he trying to show us? I think it's this friend. The historic division between Jew and Gentile reminds us, reminds us, it confronts us with a fact that every form of alienation, division, estrangement between us and another person reflects not so much a problem between us and them as it does between one or both of us and God. So think about this. Think about it. What is it that separates a husband from a wife? Is it which he said or, or she said? Or is it the fact that neither one of them is living in submission to God? Either as a general lifestyle or in a particular moment of, of conflict. Okay, what is it that separates or causes the, the rich to keep their distance from the poor? What creates that division? Is it, is it not because we forget that all we have is a gift from God? And that in His eyes, every one of us is a spiritual beggar. Okay, what is it that creates racial tension between black men and white men or between blacks and Latinos? Okay, is it not that we arrogantly find our worth and our ethnic and cultural identity? 
instead of humbly recognizing that our worth is found in every one of us being an image bearer of the King. If you're a Christian, what what is it that causes you to look down on other Christians? And to smugly say in your mind because you're too smart to say it with your mouth, God, I thank you that I'm not like that teenager or that man. Is it not because you think you are who you are because of the choices that you've made instead of recognizing in humility that you are who you are because God has been gracious to you? What's the point? Disunity, division, separation, alienation in our relationships as men ultimately reflects not just a problem here, but a problem here. To be divided Division among men is a reflection of separation from God. And I think it's fair to say, just based on a week of reading the average newspaper, that we live in a world that longs for unity. I mean, would you agree with that? We, we live in a world that's, that's hungry for unity. And yet, church, we are never going to experience true unity if we don't recognize the source of our disunity. Okay? Our disunity, racially, culturally, ethnically, it doesn't come from a lack of cultural sensitivity. And therefore, it is not solved through diversity initiatives. Okay? Division among men is always a result of separation from God, which means ultimately we don't need another round table at the UN. We need a redeemer. Praise God, that's precisely what he's given us. Division between men is a result of separation from God. But secondly, point number two, reconciliation among men is a result of reconciliation to God. Okay, so look at verse 13. This couldn't be more decisive. What's it say? But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near to the blood of Christ. What's Paul getting at there? When he says you're far off, he's he's summarizing all he just said about the Gentiles. You're separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenant, no hope without God in the world. You're far off. You're alienated from God and alienated from men. So what does God do? He brings those who are far off near through the blood of Christ. He he reconciles us to himself and in so doing reconciles us to one another. And there are two things that make this reconciliation possible. Okay, very simply, God has to tear something down and God has to build something new. Two things. This reconciliation, us to God and us to one another, is going to happen. Two things are going to have to happen. God's going to have to tear something down, and God's going to have to build something new. And both of these show up in 14 and 15. So what does Paul say God has to tear down? Look at verse 14. He, speaking of Jesus, has broken down. Look at those words. Broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Fighting wall of hostility. You know, I, I, I've mentioned this, this first century hostility between, between Jews and Gentiles, and it was true. I mean, they weren't buds. And it, it was hostile on a couple levels. So it was, 
It was religiously hostile, right? The, the Jews knew the one true God. The Gentiles, for the most part, were just all pagans. There was, there was cultural and, and social hostility. You know, the, the Mosaic law that was designed by God to teach the surrounding nations that the Lord was a holy God and required a people that were set apart for him. Right? That's what the law was intended to teach. But, but what happened to it? What happened to it? It became a source of self-righteousness and arrogance. Jews used the law instead of a tool of witness to show what life under God's wonderful care was like. They used it to look down on Gentiles, whom they considered, unlike themselves, sinners. Religious hostility, culture and social hostility, and then finally, there was racial hostility. It's a big deal. A big deal. More than any other distinction, Jews and Gentiles were separated by sharply different lineages. So, the Jews traced their bloodline to Jacob, not Esau. Isaac, not Ishmael. Abraham, and no other father. Okay, and it's, it's the racial aspect of their hostility, folks, that I, I, that I think we can most easily identify with in our own day and age. You know, I don't think you have to look any further than the ethnocentric pride that rises in our hearts toward, toward men and women who don't look like us. You know, who are, who are black if we're white or, or white if we're black. Racial hostility is as much a part of, of our history as it was part of the Ephesians' history. So, so what did Jesus do to break down that hostility. What did he do? Well, he tells us in verse 15, we're going to be reconciled to God, reconciled to one another. Something's got to be torn down. Something's got to be built up. Well, what's got to be torn down? A dividing wall of hostility. How are you going to do that, Jesus? Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Say, what? (laughs) I did that too, so you're in good company. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it can't mean. It can't mean that all or part of the Old Testament law has no abiding authority or significance for Christians today. It cannot mean that. Why do I say that? Well, because of 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture... Part of it? Some of it? The comfortable parts? No. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. When was that written? After Jesus. Okay? Let there be none of this. I'm a New Testament Christian business. Okay, if you're a New Testament Christian and you don't submit yourself to the Old Testament in the way I'm about to describe, okay, you're a heretic. All right. It can't mean that all or part of the Old Testament law has no abiding authority or significance for us today. And notice that Paul doesn't make any distinctions in Ephesians 2.15 between different classes of law, as if, well, the ceremonial law has been sort of pushed away. 
but the moral law remains. Or the civil law has been pushed away, but the moral law remains. I mean, you people do that. You don't see those distinctions here. You don't see those in the Bible. So, what does that mean? It means that the entire law has been abolished. And yet the entire law remains profitable. Go figure. (laughs) And I would argue, friends, and this is one of the, the sections in Ephesians where, and I want to plead with you on this, we really have to slow down and think carefully about our Bibles. Okay? I would argue that the key to understanding Ephesians 2.15, in what sense has the law been abolished, comes from Matthew 5.17, where Jesus says this, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to what? To fulfill them. Hmm. There's a difference. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. You read that and you think, Jesus and Paul need to have a sit down. Paul's saying, the law's been abolished. He's saying, I didn't come to abolish the law. So what gives? Well, the key is to recognize that, that the word for abolish in Ephesians 2.15 means to make inoperative or to nullify. In other words, Jesus nullifies the law, Ephesians 2.15, by fulfilling the law, Matthew 5.17. Jesus nullifies the law by fulfilling the law. Through his perfect obedience, Christ brings the goal of the law to completion. How does he do that? Because he's the one to whom the law pointed from its conception. He's the righteous one. He's he's the true Israel. The one who would be and do as the true Israel what ethnic Israel could never be and do for themselves. So how did the fact that Jesus fulfilled the law, perfectly obeyed it as the true Israel, how does that affect the relationship between Jews and Gentiles? Well, it means that God no longer distinguished people on the basis of their obedience to the law, but on the basis of their relationship to Christ. That's the change. Okay, in other words, when Paul says that Jesus abolished the law, he's saying that the person and work of Christ fundamentally changed the way that we relate to God. Which is another way of saying that when Jesus fulfilled the law, it marked the dawn of a new covenant. A new covenant. So, so before the coming of Christ, how did you enjoy relationship with God, covenant with God? You did it by observing the law. Okay, by the way, that doesn't mean that relationship with God in the Old Testament was legalistic. Okay, the law was a gift of grace in the sense that it pointed to Christ. They, Old Testament saints were saved by grace through faith, no less than we are today. But when Christ came and fulfilled the law by perfectly obeying the law, he brought the law to an end. He nullified it in the sense that the law ceased to define God's covenant relationship with his people. That's what ceased. Okay, so... 
to tie these threads together, the Mosaic law remains instructive and authoritative for us today. But only as it is fulfilled in Christ. Which is another way of saying that if you're a Christian, you are no longer under the law in a covenantal sense. So, let me illustrate this. Under the old covenant, under the law, enjoying right relationship with God meant resting from your work for a 24-hour period every seven days. It was called the Sabbath. Right, right. Today, under the new covenant, listen carefully, enjoying right relationship with God means resting in the finished work of Christ as the Sabbath rests to which the physical Sabbath day always pointed. Okay? So, Christ becomes our Sabbath rest. There's a change in the way we are submitted to the law because there's a change in covenant, a way that we relate to God. So, is there great wisdom in honoring the Sabbath principle and taking a day off your work every week? And all God's people said, Amen! (laughs) Yes, right with you. I'm going to do that tomorrow. Okay? But taking Sunday off is no longer part of our covenantal obligation to God. Okay? Jesus fulfilled that aspect of the law, and we wisely set aside one day in seven to renew our faith in him and trust in him. That's the first thing Jesus does. Reconciled Jew and Gentile, he breaks down this dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law. He undercuts the very thing that the Jews used to pat themselves on the back and look down on the Gentiles. He abolishes the law. Okay, That's what he tears down. That's the tear down part. Here's the build up. What's he build up? Well, he makes us one new man in Christ. That's what he builds up. He tears down the dividing wall of hostility created by the law. And in its place, he builds up, he creates one new man in Christ. Okay, where do I get this? Well, look back at verse 15. Very clear. Jesus abolishes the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Purpose. What's the purpose, Paul? That he might create in himself, in Jesus, one new man in place of the two. What's up with that? What simply means that Jesus just didn't bring an end to the old covenant. He created a new covenant. He didn't just say no more relating to under to God through the law in a covenantal sense. He said, I'm going to create a new covenant, a new way of relating to God. He establishes a new covenant. He unites Jews to Christ by faith and Gentiles to Christ by faith, so that in Christ, Jew and Gentile are part of one body. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. So under the old covenant, how did you have, in some cases, unity between Jew and Gentile? Well, here's how you add it. The Gentiles had to become Jews. 
They had to be assimilated into Israel. In the new covenant, how do you have unity between Jew and Gentile? Both of them are united to Christ. That's the difference. That's why in verse 13, Paul says that we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's one new man. Jews and Gentiles are together reconciled to God and receive as a new entity all the blessings that God once promised only to the Jews. So, what does all this have to do with our unity today? (laughs) You've hung with me for a while here. There's a lot of development in this point. What does this have to do with our unity today? Well, it tells us that the true source of our unity, whether you're talking between husband and wife, black and white, parent and child, sister and brother, is not common interest, common life experiences, common culture, common language, common music, common community service. The true source of unity, real unity, enduring unity, in any human relationship is a common union to Christ. That's where your unity comes from. Which means it's not something you can create for yourself, friend. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from God. Division among men is a result of separation from God. And reconciliation among men is a result of reconciliation to God. So let me make a couple points in conclusion. Okay? I've already said that true unity is a relationship that God creates through the power of the gospel. That means if we want our relationship with one another to grow, guess what we better be busy working on? Our relationship with God. Okay, say that again. If you want to if you want to see progress in your relationships with other men, then you better be working on your relationship with God. That's that's what Paul's after here. If you want to experience greater unity with your spouse, you better give some attention to your relationship with God. Okay, if you want to experience greater unity with your coworker, then you better give some attention to your relationship with God. Okay, if you want to experience unity with your parents, siblings, or children, mind you, so far as it depends on you, it's an important qualification. You must give attention to your relationship with God. Okay? Reconciliation among men is a result of reconciliation to God. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about a once-for-all access to God that you receive the moment you're saved. Okay, so unity with God and men always starts there, but, but unity in Christ, unity in Christ will strengthen and deepen as we learn day by day how to live in the good of that unity in Christ in the way we relate to one another. Okay, so, so it's created, the potential for it's there. We have access, but that's an entirely different thing from taking advantage of the access, from living in the good of that unity. God creates the unity, and then day by day we have to learn how to live in the good of it. And here's where I want to speak very practically and answer the question, how can we strengthen true unity in our church, in our community, and in our country? Believe it or not, Paul actually answers that right here. Okay, look at verse 17. Look at this. And he, Jesus, came 
Unity always starts with the work of God, friend. Always starts with God. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near the Jews. A very important point. Notice, it doesn't matter what sort of spiritual privileges you think you start out with. It doesn't matter if you grew up you know, like the Jews, experiencing life in the church. Some of you have. That's a great blessing. But you still need peace with God through faith in Christ. You've been near to the truth of the gospel for many years. Near to God, if you would. But that doesn't mean you've been reconciled to Him. All of us, regardless of church background, need the peace that only God can provide. So how does that come How do we achieve that? What do we need to do to work toward that? Well, verse 18 is the key. I'm going to draw three applications out of this one verse very briefly. For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In case you didn't catch it, all three persons of the Trinity are present in that verse. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means all three persons of the Godhead are engaged, involved, committed, and required to help us experience true unity. So, I think this verse challenges us to do three things, friends. Verse 18. First, it challenges us. If we're going to experience this unity that Jesus died to win, died to create between us and God, and thereby between us and all others who've been united to God. If we're going to experience that, increasingly live in the good of that, here's the first thing we have to do. We have to be a gospel people. I'm picking up here on that little phrase, through him, at the beginning of the verse. Which means we have to fight to relate. This is a fight. Relate to God solely on the basis of what Jesus does for us, and not on this basis of what we do for God. Okay? Nothing fuels cultural, religious, and racial pride like thinking you got yourself reconciled to God because it's something you did. And something that person over there failed to do. And nothing undercuts religious, cultural, and racial pride like remembering day by day that like every human being, there's nothing you can do to earn reconciliation to God. You want, to, you want to have your ethnic pride undercut? Remember that. It's a gift God gives. And it's a gift God gives to that person over there who is so very different than you too. We need to be a gospel people. Second, we must be a spiritual people. Okay, notice Paul says we have access through Jesus, through him, in one spirit. That's important. That means we must fight to display, if we want this unity, if we want to experience it, we have to fight to display the fruit of the Spirit in all our relationships. So unity grows in a certain kind of soil. What kind of soil? The soil of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And praise God that if you're a Christian, that he's placed his spirit in you so that you have power to produce those fruits. And as you rely on the Holy Spirit and learn to walk in the spirit and depend on the spirit, the spirit of God will produce those fruits in and through you. And guess what plant's going to grow when you're producing the spiritual fruit? Unity. Unity. We need to be a gospel people. We need to be a spiritual people. And then here's the final thing. 
We need to be a consciously adopted people. Consciously adopted people. We have to fight to remember that every child of God, this is where I'm picking up on the last phrase in 18, one spirit to the Father. We've got to fight to remember that every child of God is an adopted son or an adopted daughter. Why do I say that? Because none of us are born calling him Father. We're born rebelling, alienated. When Paul says that we have access to the Father, he's saying you now get to call God exactly what Jesus calls God. Well, how does that happen? What happens is you remember that the person next door or across the aisle or in the bed next to you needs adoption no less than you do. And if they're a believer, then they have been adopted. God is their father, no less than he's your father. And that will help keep us humble. Because we'll remember that no matter how different that person looks, or no matter how different that person is, if they're a Christian, they've got the same dad. Same dad. You, know, you, you think of children, even from you know, two different biological moms who have this you know, surprising relationship because they have the same dad. That's what it means to remember we're adopted, to be conscious we've been adopted. Gospel people, spiritual people, adopted people. True unity is something that God creates through the power of the gospel. And Paul's point in Ephesians 2 is that division among men always reflects separation with God and that reconciliation among men. Jews and Gentiles are a paradigm of this. Reconciliation among men always reflects reconciliation to God. I hope as you hear this word that like me, there's something in your heart that is saying, Lord, I long for that kind of unity. I long to know that in my, my marriage. I long to know that in my, in my church. I long to know that in my family. And, and this morning, friends, I'd like us to do two things in response. Uh, first, I want us to take some time to pray. Okay? And in particular, I want us to pray for racial unity in this church and racial unity in our nation. You know, if you were following the news in 2015, it, it, you'd have to be unconscious, I think, to not recognize that, that last year there was a real increase in racial tension in this country. And I praise God for the way this church, even as I look out this morning, is a picture of the Lord redeeming and uniting men and women from, ev- men and women from every tribe and every tongue. But we want to pray for that. So we want to pray for racial unity in our church in our nation, in small groups of four or five. You don't have to speak. If you just want to listen, that's fine. But let's respond to God's word by praying for racial unity in particular. And then Jeremy and the band are going to lead us in singing a song that reminds us that all our unity in any relationship is only possible through the blood of Christ. Okay? So let's take five minutes to pray, break up with the folks around you, and then we'll sing in close.